Section 22 of the South American Republics, Volume 2, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Piotr Nater. Part 4, Ecuador. Chapter 5, Modern Ecuador. President Rocafuerte was not only animated by revolutionary principles, imbued with liberal ideas, and a student of the best political and economic writers, but he proved to be a good administrator, practical, cautious, and sure and earned the title of the greatest of ecuador's reformers his first step was to summon a constituent assembly which divided the country into provinces and parishes outlined a rational scheme of administration and made a substantial beginning towards substituting civil for military government although he did not attempt to carry into practice the dreams of radical liberals impracticable among a population nine-tenths indians in semi-bondage and in a country where the clergy were dominant he reformed the taxing system set in order the finances so far as his means and knowledge would permit earnestly encouraged industry agriculture and commerce repaired and built roads promulgated a new and humane criminal code and established schools he set up the pyramids of the french geographers showing that tender regard for his country's repute abroad which is rarely absent in statesmen of high character and noble aims under his administration ecuador assumed the payment of her proportion twenty one and a half per cent of one million eight hundred thousand pounds of the debt contracted by the defunct united states of colombia during the war of independence however this debt proved a burden too great for her resources interest fell behind and the principle has been scaled down repeatedly only in nineteen hundred was an arrangement satisfactory to the bondholders finally reached his efforts made ecuador the second south american republic whose independence was formally recognized by spain in religious matters he proved true to his liberal convictions and while never persecuting the clergy always advocated religious freedom for the individual but though he set his country's feet in the path of progress the steps were slow short and uncertain his alliance with the military element as represented by flores and the religious and social conservatism of the bulk of the people hampered rapid progress the radical liberals conspired against him but their plots were sternly stamped out government remained essentially military and aristocratic and active participation was confined to the educated and military classes nevertheless a sort of equilibrium between the demands of the governing caste and the capacities of the producing masses was reached and a certain degree of order replaced the indiscriminate exactions and tyranny which the proletariat had endured ever since the first spaniard had landed when rocafuerte finished his term in eighteen thirty nine ecuador was at peace and had recovered much of the material prosperity lost during the long wars on the plateau the indians cultivated their wheat and potatoes in security while on the low coast lands the cacao industry flourished making ecuador one of the chief sources of the world's supply of chocolate and multiplying guayaquil's population and wealth flores's command of the army ensured him the succession to the presidency though his return to power meant political reaction the beneficent effects of Rocafuerte's system had been too obvious to be entirely ignored and hastily abandoned. Flores's first measures were moderate, 
but his irrational ambition quickly led him into an expensive and fruitless intervention in the Colombian Civil War of 1840. His financial difficulties and a return to military habits caused him to adopt measures continually more arbitrary, and he went stubbornly ahead with his schemes to make his dictatorship permanent. He forced the adoption of a new constitution, lengthening the presidential term to eight years, and caused himself to be declared elected in 1843. The conflict with the liberals became acute. Rocafuerte protested and was forced to fly for his life. The young radicals of Quito plotted the tyrant's assassination, while the villagers of the plateau arose in revolt against the gatherers of an obnoxious poll-tax. In 1845, a liberal revolution broke out at Guayaquil. Flores descended from the tableland, but the liberal army met and defeated him at the foot of the mountains, and he accepted the offer of $20,000 in cash and a pension to leave the country. The better elements of the triumphant party were not able to keep the upper hand. A new constitution was hastily adopted, and the mulatto Ramon Roca installed as president. For four years he ruled while the gulf between liberals and conservatives widened day by day, and factional jealousies and ambitions within the dominant party became menacing. The Congress of 1849 quarrelled bitterly over the presidential succession, and was unable to agree on anyone. Ambitious chiefs got arms and men together, and after a year of uncertainty, General Urbina of Guayaquil issued a pronunciamento, declaring Diego Noboa provisional head of the government. A convention called for the purpose, adopted a new constitution, and elected Urbina's nominee president for the full term. To the consternation of the liberals, he recalled the Jesuits and gave asylum to the defeated conservatives from Colombia, going so far as to send troops to the frontier to aid in their restoration. But Urbina, to whose command these forces had been entrusted, proclaimed himself dictator and exiled Noboa. He promulgated a new constitution, Ecuador's sixth in twenty-two years, persecuted the conservatives and ruled for four years as an ultra-liberal. At the expiration of his term in 1856, he named his friend Robles as his successor, who maintained himself against the conservative attacks until, in 1859, his government became involved in a war with Peru. When Robles and Urbina went to the Peruvian frontier, the conservatives rose behind them. As a matter of fact, the country was tired of the misrule of the military chiefs, miscalled liberals, whose government was a compound of oppression for their enemies and license for their friends. The clericals armed their adherents in the northern villages and marched on Quito. The partisans of the administration at the capital could oppose no effective resistance, and the insurgents entered the city, and on May 1st installed a provisional government with Garcia Moreno at its head. The latter at once pushed on south with a small force, and though defeated by Robles, he escaped to Peru, where he received help for new operations. In spite of Moreno's temporary reverse, his friends retained possession of Quito, and the Peruvian blockade of Guayaquil absorbed the president's attention. The forces under Robles soon crumbled away, and he resigned and went into banishment. Urbina, the real chief of the Liberal Party, had a small body of troops in Cuenca, with which he tried to maintain the unequal contest but his position soon became untenable, and he followed Robles into exile. 
Moreno was now master of the whole Andean region. Guayaquil, however, remained in the hands of a liberal chief. The Peruvian government had tired of its bargain to support the Ecuadorian clericals. The blockade was abandoned, and the Peruvian ships retired after making a treaty with the Guayaquil authorities. This rid Moreno of an embarrassing entanglement with a foreign power, although it left the Guayaquil insurgents free to employ all their forces against him. Descending with all the forces he could muster, his mountaineers defeated the coast troops in every encounter, and on the 2nd of September 1860 Moreno captured the great seaport, putting an end to open opposition in all Ecuador. Every successful revolutionist in those days made his own constitution, so it is a waste of words to tell that Moreno summoned a convention which promulgated a new fundamental law for the republic. During the next fifteen years he remained the dominant personality in Ecuadorian history. His biography is typical of the careers of the higher class of Creole statesmen and profoundly interesting to a student of South American history, as illustrating the difficulties with which men of constructive minds and a passion for order have been obliged to contend. A scion of one of the oldest and proudest Spanish families, he had been proscribed in his youth and spent the years of his exile studying in the old world. He returned with his naturally fine mind stored with the fruits of study and observation, but with his prejudices of caste and religion unshaken. The clericals set all their hopes on this brilliant young advocate, and his public life, his opinions, and his personality resume the reactionary characteristics of Ecuador. Nevertheless, it is hard for an unprejudiced outsider to study the history of his country during his time without retaining a strong admiration for his abilities and force, even if not convinced that his career made for the moral uplifting of the Republic. He found the finances in a wretched state, salaries were unpaid, the revenue amounted to less than a million pesos, and the government was living from hand to mouth on 20% loans. He directed his activity principally towards effecting urgent material reforms, increasing the revenue by systemizing taxation, suppressing frauds and contraband, funding a mint and hospital at Quito, building the great wagon road from Quito to the southern provinces, and connecting that remote and mountain-locked capital by a telegraph line with Guayaquil. The whole of his own salary he devoted to the public use. The laws were better enforced, life and property became safer, and material prosperity increased. The government was centralized, the semi-independency of the departments abolished, the Jesuits recalled, the rights and privileges of the clergy restored and increased, and the concordat signed with the Holy See, which virtually freed the Ecuadorian Church from all secular control. The concordat was denounced throughout the continent as treason to South American independence, and his relations with European diplomatic representatives were so cordial and frank that rumors of his willingness to accept a foreign protectorate, or even annexation by Spain, were rife in the other capitals. The publication of his personal correspondence with a French diplomatist raised such a storm against him that other countries plotted his overthrow, and the Democrats of Colombia, victorious in the Civil War of 1863, sent an army to the frontier, proclaiming that their purpose was, quote, to liberate the brother Democrats of Ecuador from the theocratic yoke of Professor Moreno, end quote. 
His army was defeated in the battle of Guasput, but he stood firm and his people showed no eagerness to accept Columbia's invitation to re enter that confederacy. Her army was unable to follow up its advantage, and the danger quickly passed. When war broke out between Spain and Peru, he, like the Emperor of Brazil, refused to follow Chile's example and take sides against the mother country. In a word, his foreign policy was a selfish but intelligent opportunism, and he was not influenced by vague sentimental considerations and blind chauvinism. In 1864, Urbina, with the countenance and assistance of Peru, invaded the southern province Loja, but the insurrection was promptly crushed. Next year, Moreno's term expired, and he named a disciple and friend to be president in his place. But his own political preponderance was so unquestioned, and his prestige so enormous in the barracks, convents, and pulperias, that he continued the real ruler of the country. His understudy did not please him, and he demanded and received a resignation. The incumbent next selected proved insubordinate, and had to be displaced by force. When Moreno declared himself provisional dictator, the Guayaquil liberals undertook an armed resistance, but by 1869 he was firmly in the saddle once more. He kept his hold on the government, apparently becoming more securely entrenched each year in the love and confidence of the soldiery, the priests, and the common people. From the safety of exile, the liberals wrote crushing pamphlets against him and his despotism, his favoritism towards the clergy, his steady relentless policy of conservatism and reaction, but their attempts at insurrection were feeble, and in 1875 he was re-elected as a matter of course. The liberals, hopeless of ending his domination constitutionally or by open war, had recourse to assassination. On the 6th of August, a party of young Creoles deliberately killed him at midday on the principal square of Quito in the presence of the populace and the soldiery. The murderers were executed and the vice-president succeeded to the vacancy. However, no one appeared big enough to fill Moreno's shoes, and his death made civil war inevitable. After a few months, the vice-president was deposed, then one of Moreno's ministers remained at the head of affairs for a short time, but finally Antonio Borrero was selected president in constitutional form. He proved not to possess the resolution requisite to cope with the situation, General Veintemilla, commander of the troops in Guayaquil, revolted in the name of the Liberal Party, defeated Borrero, and went through the usual form of summoning a convention, adopting a new constitution, and having himself named president. He held power insecurely and by the aid of a personal party from 1878 to 1883. But neither conservatives nor liberals were satisfied. The radicals attacked him furiously for not putting in practice anti-clerical principles, and the conservatives never trusted him. When his constitutional term expired, the army proclaimed him dictator, but he soon fell before the combined forces of his enemies. During the fighting, José Camano came to the front, and now seized the presidency. Alfaro, the principal liberal leader who had cooperated with Camano in overthrowing Veintemilla, made war against his late ally, but was defeated. The new president, once securely in his seat, formed close relations with the clergy and the old partisans of Moreno, and though the liberal chiefs kept up a guerrilla warfare in the forests and swamps, he finished out his term. 
In 1888 he was succeeded by Antonio Flores, who followed his predecessor's policy in the main, and was in his turn succeeded by another friend of Camano's, Luis Cordero. It was not until 1895 that the Liberals were able to gather their forces for a formidable rebellion. Camano was then governor of Guayaquil, and the immediate occasion of the outbreak was the charge that he had taken part in the sale of the Chilean ironclad Esmeralda to Japan, then at war with China. It was claimed that Ecuador had acted as a go-between and committed a willful breach of the rules governing the conduct of neutral nations. President Cordero's prestige was seriously compromised by this incident. His forces were defeated in several actions, and he resigned. Alfaro, who had been in exile since 1883, returned, took possession of Guayaquil, was proclaimed dictator, and finally completely overthrew the conservatives in the Battle of Gatajo. His election to the presidency followed in 1897, and he was succeeded four years later by the president incumbent, General Leonidas Plaza. The Ecuador coast is one of the most fertile and lovely regions on the earth. It already furnishes a considerable proportion of those tropical products of which the great nations of the temperate zone demand more every year. Like a Luthon, which has been stranded at the foot of the Andes, its great shores refresh the eyes of the northbound traveller tired of the dreary desert that stretches from Valparaiso to the Gulf of Guayaquil. It possesses the best harbour on the Pacific south of Panama, and one of the few in all South America which is not mountain-locked. Between the Cordillera and the sea there is room for untold millions of cacao and coffee trees. In spite of civil war and political upheavals, which have made her custom-house so often the prey of irresponsible bandits masquerading under the name of dictators, Guayaquil's population and wealth have increased until she has outstripped the hoary old capital, which, enthroned on a volcano site, overlooks a narrow strip of cultivable land. Nevertheless, the plateau is still predominant in the Ecuadorian state, and supports a vast majority of the population. Nine-tenths of the inhabitants of the Andean region are Indians, mostly in a condition not far removed from bondage, by circumstance and their own distrustful natures shut up within the narrow limits of an existence which has no outlook over the mountains. Nonetheless, they are sturdy fellows, admirably suited to the climate of those high altitudes, and though their numbers have been practically stationary since the Spanish conquest, the failure to increase has been rather due to lack of room than to misgovernment, vice, or the want of the qualities that make for success in the struggle for existence. In that day, now near at hand, when a great railway shall connect the string of towns on the Ecuadorian plateau with Peru and Colombia, and when branches shall run to the ports and take the place of the well-nigh impassable trails down the tremendous rain-soaked slopes of the Andes, the mountain region of Ecuador may be transformed and revivified by new system of agriculture, and the artistic taste and remarkable ingenuity of the people may find a market and a reward. The railway from Guayaquil long stopped at the foot of the mountains, but within the last three years the almost insurmountable difficulties of the ascent have been overcome by American engineers, and the line is being rapidly built along the plateau to Quito. 
Ecuador already supplies the world with Panama hats, and other manual industries may flourish when unfavourable transportation conditions are removed. Not only are the common people patiently industrious, but they possess innate good taste and artistic feeling. Such a people has special aptitudes, sure to give it a place in that vastly complicated workshop into which the multifarious needs of modern civilization are transforming the earth. The plateau of Ecuador does not, however, offer room for any considerable immigration, and its wheat, barley, and potatoes do not and will not much more than suffice for local consumption. Ecuador's great future lies in the beautiful and as yet sparsely peopled Pacific Plain, and in the vast and absolutely unknown forests which stretch east from the Andes. End of section 22